Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Vassallo, writer, founder, and person with very strong opinions. He's building a portfolio of small bets in public on Twitter, and I will talk to him about the importance of making money in diversified ways, how to structure your life around being a founder, and how to figure out which business ideas might actually work. Here is Daniel Vassallo. I'm super glad you're here. Because I have a couple of questions, dude. You had you've written a couple of tweets over the last couple of days that I would like to talk about, <laughs> and one of them, one of them is um, our mutual friend Dan Rowden, who runs Illo.so, this uh, Twitter analytics thing. He has um, started uh, a pricing experiment, I guess, uh, offering lifetime plans. And he talked about it and you tweeted something at him, which I found very interesting and which probably will confuse every single software as a service founder that is listening to this. You said that upfront revenue is more important or bigger than recurring revenue. I would like to know what that means. What were you trying to say? And like, how contrarian did you want to be with that one? Well, uh, not very much. I think uh, uh, it's important to realize that recurring revenue is just an upfront payment paid in installments. I mean, there's always a lifetime value in all SaaS businesses, right? You know, if the average subscriber stays for 18 months and you're charging $10 a month, right? basically the average lifetime value is $180. If you can collect that $180 upfront, mm -hmm. it's better objectively. Right now, of course, there are situations where, uh, you know, the cost of running the business, the cost of sales are proportionate to the time. You know, if you're running a hosting service where, you know, it's infeasible, right? And I'm not saying that the current revenue is bad or it should never be used or whatever. Uh, I'm trying to uh, make people reconsider, right, whether they should be considering uh, lifetime these whatever you call them upfront payments one-time payments because i think the main advantage is that usually they make the sale easier i think i look at my own behavior every time i'm about to sign up for a subscription service even if it's five dollars a month and i can afford five dollars a month right it's it's not a big deal but i'm always reluctant right i'm always there's this psychological thing or seemingly irrational thing that uh, makes me reluctant to add another thing onto my bank statement, you know, this this feeling that maybe I won't use it every month and I'm overpaying and maybe if I want to cancel, I won't be able to find how to cancel, so I forget about it. There's something insidious that I think everyone recognizes subconsciously about subscription, which I think basically you're putting that burden on your customer in the most delicate point when they're about to sign up, right? Where when I observe my own behavior, when whenever I need a piece of software and uh, I notice that it's a one-time fee, even if it's a high one-time fee, if it's $200, $200, I'm more likely to impulse buy by knowing, you know, because there's a sense of ownership as well, which I think, again, we undervalue. Of course, you can always say you never really own a software. You know, I bought Windows 95 back in 1994, <laughs> and I don't think I can run it anymore. <laughs> that I paid a lot of money for it. But I felt like I owned Windows 95. I had a CD. I could install it. I bought a new computer. I installed it again. You know, all these kinds of things. And I think with the software that I buy one time, um, you know, recently, for example, I bought uh, Snapper, the screenshot tool from, from Tony. You might know him. I don't know, I paid $30 or something like that. I own it. Now I have an icon on my computer. I'm not paying anything. Of course, he's saying, I think in, this, in the small print, he's saying that if he may need to do a major update or whatever, it might be a paid update or whatever, I'm completely fine with that. Like Windows 95, when Microsoft released Windows 98, I had the option to pay for it. Right at some point, computers became outdated and there's probably no computer in the world now that would run Windows 95. Right? But it's okay. So... Uh, it's not, I think it's true, it's objectively true that upfront, uh, collecting the money upfront is better than getting it uh, in installments, of course. But, you know, some people mislead it as like, I'm against the cutting payments, that's not what I want to say. But <laughs> yeah, I want to, try to make people reconsider, pause and make their lives easier. I think uh, for certain software, I think it's a very, very viable uh, option, which I think ILO is a great example, and I think who would I think Dan would get a competitive advantage because I think none of this a couple of competitors that right, in his space that overlap a lot. Uh, I think right now they all are caring in the sort of twenty dollars, thirty dollars or higher per month, 
if he would be able to you know pay $120 I don't know 190 I don't remember his pricing I think he might get a advantage there I can see that too and and there's certainly different kinds uh, different kinds of software that fit different kind of pricing models right you have yeah. these things that obviously benefit from a one time payment like software like standalone software I also mm -hmm. bought snapper like I also bought yeah. that piece of software for the exact same reason it's packaged it's one thing I don't expect it to grow into like the world's biggest you know like platform for screenshots I just wanted to be able I want to be able to take screenshots of the things that I have and for that it's yeah. great I think for an analytics platform it's similar because it has a certain kind of purpose but the the risk that I always see which is why I bring this up uh, is that people overestimate the uh, the amount of money that um not, not overestimate well people overestimate how much money they can make uh, yeah. by forgetting how much expenses they actually have in the future right down the line because there's uh, with any kind of upfront payment that is not recurring at some point and hopefully far in the future your customer has used up the amount of money that they paid to you right so you have yeah. to compensate for that so where do you draw the line where where do you think um for a founder that has not yet implemented that kind of particular payment system like an upfront payment that only has recurring revenue how do you how would they go about like calculating the price that they should be actually asking for I have no hard rule, but the, my only heuristic in general for everything that I've done so far is to slightly err on undercharging. I know this is probably also contrarian advice. Usually the things that we hear on the internet is charge more, you know, uh, you should raise prices, whatever. I'd rather leave some money on the table, get more customers, get more word of mouth, get more reputation, more credibility, more emails and my contact list, my email lists, right? And the, and the way I err on undercharging is by trying to psychologically put myself in the shoes of my customers. I know this is not a perfect heuristic because I'm not like every customer, you know, people with different price uh, uh, purchasing power in other parts of the world, whatever. But I make an assumption that at least there's a decent percentage of people that might behave like me. And I try to put myself, uh, you know, in my shoes, like if I'm visiting this landing page, right? Would I pay $50 for this? Would I pay $50 a month for this? Would I pay 10? Uh, would I, and if once I get it and I do consume the product or start using it, would I feel satisfied with how much I paid? And again, it's hard to do because we have to tap into the subconscious, right? Because it's not something you analyze on a spreadsheet. Um, but it's what I try to do, right? And then I base my pricing, both pricing model and the price points as, as, as well based on this. And, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's, um, uh, it's not a one-way door, right? You can change pricing later. So you can start with something generous, right? At least money on the table. As things start to grow, you can optimize later. You might notice, maybe I can charge more for this, right? And, and improve things. Um, I was uh, watching um, the Basecamp guys a couple of days ago, had a great discussion about pricing, right? They've always been, um, uh, you know, very simple, not per seat pricing for Basecamp. And now they're, they're actually they're experimenting with a per seat pricing. This is one size with Sun. They were discussing how after 20 years, right, they're making this radical change. But it's not that daunting because... They can always revert it, right? They can always only apply it to new customers. And, you know, these things that seem risky. I, I, I would always start with, again, I, I think the biggest mistake, no, not the biggest, one of the mistakes people do are too, they tend to be too greedy in the beginning, right? In the beginning, I'd rather leave money on the table but get customers, right? This is another thing that Tony does really well, by the way, of the, the behind a Snapper, right? He released Snapper for free in the beginning, right? I think. I got the first copy actually for free, right? I paid him just because I wanted to support him, right? And uh, he, he basically allowed it to go viral. He got thousands of customers when it was still very crude, basically an MVP, right? And at one point, after a couple of months, he put a buy button, right? But um, it's, I think it's an amazing strategy, right? It allowed him to understand whether people want it. He got tons of people signing up, got their email address, 
amazing. Right? Yeah, I think I, particularly now that you mentioned the Basecamp guys, I, I saw that too. There's, they're, they're building in public. That's pretty much what that was, right? They're, they're communicating their internal things uh, on a public medium on Twitter. Tony is doing the exact same thing. He's building in public and he has been building in public for a long time now, not just with Booksnapper, but also with Blackmagic, his Twitter integration and all these other tools. And you are building in public too. I mean, sometimes with like snazzy contrarian takes, but often also with a lot of data, a lot of graphs and information on what you're doing, how you're doing certain things. I find that incredibly exciting. Like every time you post something like that, I'm just digging into the data because I, first off, there's nothing better than actual data to make choices from. And then seeing how you make choices from that data, super exciting. One of the things that you stand for the most, and I, I would assume that most people who are listening to this know this, but I'm still going to try to, you know, give you the chance to explain it. What is a portfolio of small bets? What is a portfolio? What is a small bet? And what's a bet? Can, can you give me yes. some kind of underlying definition I, for this stuff? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a, just a fundamental attitude that uh, you're treating business ideas I like to use the term like cattle, not like pets, right? Basically, you don't make a business idea part of the identity and you're going all in and you're taking imprudent risks to try to make it a reality at all costs, but you're just potentially building an experiment, uh, building a portfolio. It's very similar to how a, a VC builds a portfolio of, uh, of, of startups they invest in, right? Of course, there are differences between a VC and us as individuals, right? We can't invest into a thousand businesses, but we can have, uh, I think very realistically, um, uh, you know, four or five income streams, right? Some might be bigger than the other because business is unpredictable and sometimes what succeeds is not the one you're mostly expecting and things change over time. But it's basically this attitude, right? That I don't want to be known as the creator of the good parts of AWS or the founder of user base or the creator of the Twitter course or the small bets community host or whatever. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, I mean, because, because, because next year I might be doing something different, right? And I, I'm not, uh, this doesn't mean that I'm already thinking about something else. Actually, right now I'm pretty focused on one thing, right? I have this community, it's working well, I'm going to try my best. To continue to grow it and um, and uh, uh, you know make it as successful as possible, but it's just the attitude that it doesn't have to be this. Right, I'm not doubling down and going all in and sort of ignoring everything else. Basically, actually intentionally, uh, I'm leaving space. I don't want this to consume all my time. Right, I'm leaving space so that I'm still watching for opportunities. Take look at Peter Levels. Right, um, uh, he had no mid list, which was probably a wild success by many many and he had remote okay which was even wilder success millions of dollars one or two millions of dollars revenue per per year right look he's now experimenting with uh with interior ai just yesterday right he launched this ai avatar i think it made four thousand dollars yeah. like literally from idea to That's implementation bizarre. to and but, but the thing is, if Peter Levels had ups, had labeled himself as I'm the founder of Nomadless, I'm just going to do things around Nomads, and I'm going to specialize in Nomads, whatever, he would have missed out on other opportunities, right? Like remote, okay, maybe remote, okay, you can say it's related, but this is so completely related. Interior AI, interior design, probably the opposite of Nomads. Like I, I don't know if Nomads are that much into interior design. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but it's fascinating to see. And again, this doesn't mean that he's neglecting everything else. I think what it means is that he is, like I do, that he's not relying on Nomad List being there forever or the Moto K being there forever. He's leaving Slack in the system space so that when he finds something exciting, right, he pounces on it and he tries. The one last thing I want to say when I say small bet is that uh, it, this uh, business, I believe this may be something, again, people think it's controversial. I don't think it should be controversial that, you know, business is unpredictable. Like if I were to tell you I'm about to launch a, a software as a service that helps freelancing uh, accountants keep track of their finances and I show you a demo, I tell you my marketing strategy and I ask you how much money do you think I'll be making in six months? It could be anything, $0, $1,000 a month, $10,000 a month, $100,000 a month. It's very different, very different situation than if I were to tell you I'm going to take a job at Google 
as a junior software engineer. You can probably Google the, the range and you know you get a decent average and chances are I'm going to get, be making close to the average. Business is unpredictable, right? So knowing that, knowing how hard it is to uh, know what's going to work and what's going to fail, I think the only prudent strategy is to radically reduce the input, right? The effort, the investment. Very, again, very similar to like a VC does. A VC, they have a $10 million fund or whatever. They don't just write $10 million to the best idea they hear, like the whole check, they write $100,000 checks to a thousand companies. This is the same thing book publishers do. They publish multiple books, many books, thousands of books, like this is the same thing movie studios do in Hollywood. And I think we should be doing something similar, of course, to a smaller scale. I think we need to be even more rigorous with the, with the selection criteria. A VC might uh, afford to invest in a thousand startups and 900 of them fails. We probably can't, right? We need to, you know, maybe try five things, four or five things in a year, maybe three things, you know, depend depending on our circumstances. But I think we need to be even more selective. Things that the things that we try, we need to make sure that we don't overinvest our time because, you know, if you if you invest six months in something, how many six months periods do we have in our lifetime? Yep. <laughs> like not a lot when you think about that's it. Right. Like, I mean, that's a very very expensive thing. So I think it needs to be small, less than a month, ideally a couple of weeks. Peter Levels, again, great example. You see him do these things like very quickly. And, uh, um, and then some things work, some things don't. Right? That's the reality. And uh, then you sort of you take it from there. Right? And then you can make another small bet on what works. Again, I see Tony do this as well. He tried Snapper, small bet weekend project. 4,000 people started using it. Then he made another small bet. He spent a, a month adding more features, and then he launched it on Product Hunt. Then it went... Number one on Product Hunt, now he made another small bet so to make it a bit more, even better with markups and whatever. That's, the, you know, that's what I would like to encourage people to tame the uncertainty of business right? because it's, it's, it's hard otherwise right? if you just go on. And probably just to, to, finalize, to finalize, I think the risk that most people underestimate is the psychological risk. Um, I don't know about you, but if I were to spend six months working on something and it fails, and maybe I try again, spend six months on something and it fails, I'm going to be discouraged, right? I mean, no matter how much willpower or runway or savings I have, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, and the, 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 the psychological cost can be a ruinous uh, you know, a game over state, right? Then you might ha you know, have to go back to a full-time job or something that you don't want to do. Yeah, that's right. The, the the mental health implications of these uh, the entrepreneurial just the journey that most people are on, people don't really think about that. Like how how yeah. quickly it can actually damage their their health, like physical, mental health. And I think you said something really cool in a tweet also a couple of days ago. Um, you were um, or somebody was talking about the concept that you introduced to them of uh, a good idea is an idea that doesn't break you if it doesn't work yeah. out. And yeah. I really, really like this because this kind of brings together um, the small bet approach with the mental health care that people should take uh, on their entrepreneurial journey, right? So the, uh, can you talk to me more about what good compatible small bet ideas look like? Not the specific ideas, obviously, but yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what kind of common things do they share? No, no, I think it, for me, I sort of, I have like a selection criteria list almost like in, in, in my head that when I bump into an idea and I start to get excited, I start being inspired and see an opportunity, I try to ask myself, can I bring this to market quickly? For me, quickly, my current situation with two kids, limited time, other things going on in my life, quickly, ideally, a, a week or two. Like, can I bring this to market in a week or two? Sometimes a month might be okay, but it starts to be a stretch for me. I, and I think this can change, you know, if you're still very young, you're in your early 20s, you have less commitments, sort of maybe you can afford a little bit more. But again, I think we all have the same 24 hours a day, same average lifetime, roughly, right? So if you start spending six months a year, I think it's always a big, big, uh, big bet for everyone. Number two, uh, I like to bring. I like to start with things that I can bring to market on my own. Not because I think I can do everything, but for me, it's almost a litmus test that it's simple enough. I think I like the flexibility that if tomorrow I start feeling I lose interest or I start feeling that this is not, I don't see the opportunity anymore. I, I get, I, I start thinking about something different. 
uh, I don't want to feel sort of the obligation that there's somebody else with me and I'm letting them down and they're expecting, you know, and so I need to manage that. I want to be agile. I like waking up in the morning and just having options in front of me and no obligations. And I think if you start doing something with someone, right, at least at least in the beginning, that afterwards, like for example, in my small best community now I have, you know, multiple people doing guest classes, like this sort of a, some arrangement. And that's okay now, right? because this thing is sort of, there's some momentum, it's going on. But I wouldn't have done that in the beginning. In the beginning, how I started that project was just one cohort, one cohort course, right? Just me delivering it, just two weeks, right? That was the, 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 the limit, right? And then sort of once it's that f became full booked, I tried another one and a few more, and sort of I kept iterating over that. I also like to do things where I like to call them where time is my friend, right? And uh, I dislike opportunities where if, it, if the opportunity doesn't pay off before some time, then I have to, to, to shut it down. And this is tricky with software as a service, right? And, and I did this mistake with user base, right? With user base, I built a software as a service business that requires 24-7 support. Just last night, a couple of nights ago, I got to open up at 2 a.m. in the morning. Some AWS, some disk ran out of space. I needed to clean it up. Right? It's, it's annoying. And luckily, it rarely happens, right? With user base, it's quite simple. And customer support burden is not a big deal. But um, if it were different, right, I would have been forced to either shut it down or sell it or whatever. But right now, even though it's not making me almost any money, it's basically breaking even, it's just running, running on its own. Maybe at some point, you know, maybe I will find a buyer or maybe, maybe it will pick up. Who knows? Right? But time is my friend. Basically, I don't wake up in the morning feeling that I'm running against the end of the runway. The more every day can only bring good things, right? Because it's it's free, and you know, information products are an excellent example of this, right? You can never get a negative sale or something. Every morning, I wake up and I see a couple of sales. It's just a surprise, right? it's just a positive surprise. Of course, you know, even info products at some point might become obsolete. Maybe you know, I have a technical book. Maybe at some point, I might need to put it off the market. But it's still not an obligation. Either either I, I update it, right, or I, I, I remove it. So more or less, right, that's that. Those are some of the things. Another one might be, uh, and this is I think very uh, conventional advice. That is like I avoid doing things that don't already sell. Right, I try to not be too novel. Right, I try to go with the flow. Justin uh, Jackson, uh, um, is it Jackson? Right, uh, the the transistor guy. What's his name? Um, yeah, Justin Jackson. Jackson, right. Right. Justin Jackson talks about this a lot, right? Um, uh, sort of to not try to be too novel, right? I like to look at what what is where is money exchanging hands today? Are people buying self-published books, right? And you know, in 2012, before Gumroad and before sort of the creator economy started, there was nobody almost right, making self-published books or buying self-published books. I had never bought self-published books. Now it's changed, now it's different. Now I think my Gumroad library is bigger than my Kindle library. Right? I buy more self-published books than traditionally published books. And I think this is important information. Right? I wouldn't self-publish in 2012, but I would now. And uh, there's many other sort of things happening as well. I wouldn't call them trends because trends like, to me implies the future where things are going. I think it's basically looking at the present, like right now, what is exchanging hands, right? And I try to um, stick to things that are already working. Right? I, uh, otherwise, I think I'd be stacking the odds against me, and that's 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 that makes things harder. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, and it's kind of validation, right? As far as you can validate anything, yeah. which was also something that you recently said. Like you, you don't <laughs> yeah. believe in validation; you believe in hints, hints at that something might yeah. be working, right? I think I, this is a semantic argument, uh, but I think it's an important semantic argument because the term validation. Uh, validation should be used in mathematics and logic and whatever, things that have certainties and uncertainties. Business has none of that. Business has likelihoods and unlikelihoods, probabilities, or higher odds or lower odds. And I think if the way people use the term validation is as if something went from a state of non-validated to validated, a, a binary thing, there's rubber stamp of validated. And I think even if you're careful with it, I think if you start thinking of it like that, you start fooling yourself. That with user base, I made this huge, huge mistake, right? Where I over-invested, I lost a lot of money out of my own savings, where I started building in public, I started getting the 
uh, traditional validation signals. You know, I had a waiting list with over 4,000 emails. I had endorsements from highly influential people, the CEO of Netlify and uh, Vercel publicly endorsed me and retweeted me. I launched and you know, I was put number one on Product Hunt, front page on Hacker News for a whole day. Even launch day in terms of revenue was good, right? I made a few thousand dollars in sales. You might say this is a validated business and that's what I thought. I should be, I hired an employee, I should be spending more. And then it turned out that, you know, things were harder than they seemed, right? I mean, to convert people from the fleet size to paid, right? And the people were expecting more and more competitors emerged. And, you know, I'm almost ashamed to say, you know, I spent almost $150,000 out of my own savings in that business that is only making about $10,000 a year in revenue, not a month, right? A year. Like, I will almost certainly never recover uh, that. I mean, that's, that's a mistake, right? You should, nobody should be doing like that. And I think what fooled me was this cons the thinking in terms of validation. I thought this was a validated business. The demos that I was releasing before it was released, lots of usage, lots of people, lots of enthusiasm. Um, again, uh, and it just, so I think, again, we should eliminate the term because I think it's insidious. Like, you can never validate a poker hand, right? You, you, if, you have a, if you're playing poker, you might think you have a strong hand, or a weak hand, or something in between, right? High strength, medium strength, but it's never validated because you never know what's on the on the other people's hands or on the table or sort of in the deck or whatever. And business is way more complex because poker is just 52 cards. There's limited odds. You can technically calculate the odds. Business and the real world is just way, way more complex, million variables that right? you don't really know what's going to happen. So it's just a semantic argument. I know that people if you dig deeper, they, uh, they agree that it's just signals. But I think, uh, uh, I think it's important to be rigorous with how we think. Think of signals, think of hints. Yes, this is a hint that there's something, uh, you know, some, some demand here. This, there's a hint that I might be able to fulfill that demand. Right? There's a hint that this price is, uh, you know, is, is appropriate, whatever. Right? But I wouldn't think of certainties and use the term validation. Yeah, it's definitely not binary. And I, since since you were were talking about this as like a almost a philosophical concept, right? The idea to, that you could even validate anything. I mean, in social psych, uh, in, in social um, sciences, there's a Karl Popper's yeah. argument that you can only of falsify exactly. An, exactly. any theory, right? And, and we should do I would that a bit. say yes, you can uh, invalidate. Like for example, if I'm trying to uh, um, market a product for free and I'm struggling to make people use it while it's free. I think it's almost certain, you can probably say it's certain that I can't monetize it, or very popper-like. You can Im invalidate a business, <laughs> right. Right? but you can't <laughs> validate it, right? So right. I think there are certain, basically certain evidence right, that will tell you that there's no chance. Like if, if I can't get people to come to my landing page, right, because uh, you know, you're guaranteed that if nobody knows about your business, you could have the best product in the world, Right and uh, it's guaranteed failure. So yeah, but I but agree. if you build it, they will come. Isn't that isn't yeah, that how that yeah, works? No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's yeah. that's very important, and I think your your approach of the statistics, like the statistical approach, like this thing might or might not work out, and then adding strength in numbers, right? Having multiple experiments at the same time that gives particularly solopreneurs or bootstrap founders, people who use their own money to build a business instead of having somebody else's money to, you know, play around with, um, that gives them some more fundamental footing to at least have a higher chance at reaching some kind of profitability. So if you need to have multiple experiments going on, how many is enough and how many is too many? Because I would assume that some people that you're currently working with in, in your community probably are trying a bit too much or a bit too little in terms of diversification. What's a, what's a good approach to, to like spreading out your experiments? Yeah. There? I, I, you know, I, I don't have a hard number. I think, however, I think what I recommend, again, is uh, like we described Peter Levis before. I mean, what, how, many, how many projects does Peter Levis have? He probably has like 70 projects online that he's turned off. But realistically, every day, he's only working uh, probably actively like high-intensity mode, only on one, right? right now, probably on the avatar thing. Last week, it was on the interior AI, and he'll probably flip-flop a little bit. Maybe a month before, it was on the remote OK, or maybe a few months before. Right? So, like, actively only on one. And, um, and probably even in, the, in, in a span of a year, like if you were to examine 2021, probably he might have only touched four or five. 
but he has 70 running, right? So uh, could he have 140? Probably, right? I mean, they're not really consuming much. It's just things that he, again, that he started and they're there. They might bring something, they might not, right? And um, it, 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 it depends. So I think rather than thinking in terms of should it be five, should it be 10, should it be 100, I think what I'd like to do is, is like, Take the attitude that makes sure that whatever you do, don't do not sign up for so much work that you become completely busy. Leave some slack in the system. Always be watching for opportunities, no matter how good things are. Right? If you have something that's making you fifty thousand dollars a month, right? It might be great, amazing. That right? you're making the most money you've ever made. Right? It's 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 uh, it's wonderful. I would still recommend leave some time, some slack in the system. Keep watching. Right, because you never know. You never know about anything. This thing that's making you fifty thousand dollars a month, you know, it, there might be some disruption that might uh, reduce sales. It might be you start hating it. Right, preferences change. It might start wear, uh, wearing out and eroding your life because it might become, you know, scale changes things. That's something that I think Jason Frieden incidentally just posted a tweet a few minutes bef before we talked here. Um, scale changes things, right? And uh, and uh, you never know how it's going to affect things. So, again, it's I keep using Peter Levels as an example because he's he's a, a perfect in this, right? And despite having something that was making him millions of dollars a, a year in revenue, many people would say, oh, we should double down, forget everything else, everything else is this distraction. No, he's playing with unrelated things, right? And right now, I think he's more intrinsically interested in playing with AI than in sort of improving no midlist. And that's an important thing. Intrinsic motivation is so, so powerful, right? If you feel that you're not doing something because you're forced, right? It's, it's a pity to not use it. Right? When you feel that drive, I think uh, you should try to ask yourself, presumably like what Peter did, I mean, can I do a business around this? I'm playing with AI, I'm enjoying it, can I do something with this? Right? And it's what I like to do as well. You know, I'm doing right now like crazy things. Right? I'm, I, I've spent the last couple of months doing DIY around the house, you know, small things that I'm still a very much a newbie. In the back of my mind, and this is something completely new to me. I'm a newbie in DIY, and I don't have an audience that knows me about DIY projects. I don't have anything, any credibility. But can I do something about this? Maybe in the future, it's in the back of my mind right now. I would love to. Probably I, I would prefer this than you know, doing something related to tech. It's what I'm thinking. I jump out of bed in the morning. The first thing I thought of, I'm building an office in my garage, right? I need to go to Home Depot, buy some two-by-fours. That's the first thing I thought of, yeah. right? So... Yeah. Um, uh, again, this doesn't mean anything will happen. There's yeah. a good chance that nothing might happen, but it's there. So I'm watching for opportunities. If something, would it be an info product? Would it be selling some plans for what I'm doing? Could it be some tool? I don't know, right? But I'm always wondering, always watching for inspiration. Um, right, so that's... I don't know if I answered your question. That may be a bit sort of other way around, but no hard number, just an attitude, I think, right? of just keeping slack in the system, keep watching. Yeah. And this is a great opportunity to talk about the sponsor of this show today. MicroAcquire is the number one startup acquisition marketplace, and it's simply the most efficient way to sell your startup when you're ready to make your next move. Typically, as a first-time founder, you really have no idea what you're getting yourself into when you go through an acquisition. And MicroAcquire wants to change that for you and empower you when you're speaking with buyers and then really help you streamline this whole process of getting acquired for the maximum price without any of the headaches that come with having to go through this alone. You don't need to go alone. MicroAcquire can help. And they have helped thousands of startups successfully get acquired at this point and they have facilitated hundreds of millions in close deal volume. So if you're thinking about selling your startup, you might want to check out MicroAcquire. Go to microacquire.com to learn more. Let's just keep talking about Peter Levels. Why not? Like yeah, he's a great example, right? <laughs> like Peter has this this attitude. Two, two things. First off, he he is fine with failure. He's he's fine if stuff doesn't work out, and he's also always a beginner in every new, every field that he encounters. And he considers himself one. He doesn't consider him, himself an expert by any means, right? Like just just look at the two latest projects that he built. Like really simple 
user-facing UI that you probably wouldn't expect to see. Like it's really basic and everything is kind of just glued together, but he doesn't, he doesn't need to show that he is the best UI designer for the kind of experiments that he's doing, right? He's perfectly fine with this. And honestly, I, I am currently also getting into another hobby of mine, like a miniature painting. I, I'm really enjoying this. This is the thing. I've, I've built a little tiny mini painting studio right over there, right? This is my YouTube studio and the mini painting studio is in another corner of my basement and i've enjoyed learning about how colors work and how the, the acrylics work the chemicals in resin i'm 3d printing too like all these little things that i can make i really enjoy it and i'm also thinking hey this could be something in the future who knows i'm an absolute beginner i mean i consider myself a beginner in any field beginner writer beginner beginner twitter user beginner engineer because i know there's many people out there that are way better at what I would like to be doing that I am, but I enjoy the process of learning. And by sharing this, by teaching, I also get to share this with other people that may or may not find value in it so much that they pay me for it. Right? And that's what Peter is doing too. He's learning AI and he's just like using tiny prototype products to see if what he's learning can be monetized. What a mindset, right? Like that is, that's such a wonderful thing. Um, how how do you get to such a mindset, particularly when you come from an employment level kind of do what you're told and don't overextend? How do you no, change? To yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I I think uh, I think uh, it's important to think of. Uh, so I'm going to get to the answer, but I think what Peter Levis <laughs> what Peter Levis does really well, which seems like he's uh, he's running faster than everyone else, is that he has this ability to keep things simple, as you were noting, right, and eliminate all the unnecessary things. And this is a hard thing, right? This, is, this requires practice. And I think the how to get better at that in identifying, you know, the 80-20 rule, right? This idea that you can get 80% per, of the results with 20% of the effort. But it's hard. Like, how do you choose determine what is the right 20% to focus on. I think Peter is excellent in that. I and I think like many things, you get better with this, with practice. And in general, when we're, when we're going to a traditional career, full-time job, we have a goal, we work towards it, right? everything is, we create a Gantt chart and sort of everything is very precise, very predictable. You will every day walk closer to your goal. Uh, we, the muscle, right, uh, that we need to, make these decisions under uncertainty, right? To make these calls, to, to eliminate things, almost at Sophie's away, right? I felt this, right? And it's very hard to art exactly articulate it, but I felt that when I was starting, everything was daunting. Like, what should I leave? What should I do? But the more I do it, the better it feels. And I, I noticed this with the people in my small best community, right? Is that we have a get feedback channel and the general feedback is like, you're overdoing it. You're overthinking it. So it's like the and pe the, most of the time, these are people who are new. Like they're starting their first thing, and um, my best advice is take a small risk. Like take place, start doing things under uncertainty. This could be writing a blog post. Right? I mean, writing a blog post requires you to choose where to write it. Right? To determine how you know the the templates, whatever, the colors, the title, the fonts, and. You, you will start to realize that all those things are unnecessary, right? You're already starting to exercise that muscle, right? But you need to start to do it, right? And then um, you need to start sharing your blog post, right? Where do you share it, right? You post it here, there, or whatever, right? And you start to notice, right? What is worth doing? What is not worth doing? And like Peter Levins, for example, is very similarly as well. I think he duplicated his blog post. He said, I post a blog post and I get like 200 views. I post a tweet and I get 100,000 impressions. And I think his blog post URL now directs to his Twitter account, right? Mm -hmm. I noticed this a couple of days ago. Um, <laughs> But basically, I, it took him, you know, probably took him 10 years to, 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 mm -hmm. to come to this, right? But again, this is, I think, the evolution of realizing how to best expand our energy. And this is the thing, that when you're, when you're on your own and you have your own skin in the game, right? And you need to make ends meet, you need to survive. You, you just start to activate a part of your brain that, that, that needs to be good at uh, using energy efficiently and time efficiently. And I think when you're in a very structured environment, you don't need that. Right? You basically, you're told that the goal of the company is to release this project by November 30th. That's a hard rule. So now the only ambiguity there is is like, how do we you know, split up the work between, between us, the five team members, right? And, you know, and then we just try to work hard to get to the goal. It's a very, very different domain when you have infinite options, you can do whatever, you can keep, 
you basically can ship, keep sharpening your tools forever. I try to imagine our hunter-gathered ancestors right back 10,000 years ago and more. You know, when the tools became dull, they needed to sharpen them. When did they stop sharpening them? It was probably a gut feel that they developed, that they thought, oh, this is probably sharp enough. Yes, sure, I might be able to, I might encounter something that might require a sharper tool, but it's a gut feel. It's our subconscious. Our subconscious is smarter. <laughs> I, I believe our subconscious is probably the smartest part of our brain when it comes to dealing with uncertainty. You know, our subconscious, gut feel, whatever you want to call it. And I think when we're operating in a well-structured environment that we almost turn off our subconscious, that we try to, you're making data-driven decisions inside the company, you're working with your conscious mind, with honest, everything needs to be determined on a spreadsheets, what pros and cons, customer data, right? things like that. Whereas, you know, out there in the real world, you need to use your subconscious, this fuzzy logic calculator, right, that needs to tell you this is enough, this is not necessary, right? Right, I mean, again, like Peter Levis, uh, Interior AI, I think he monetized it before he even had a login page. Right, I think he manually sent out people like uh, <laughs> who paid uh, a, like a GUID URL or whatever, right? Sort of, um, he didn't even decide the pricing, right? He randomly yeah. gave people like 10 different prices. That was that's awesome. fascinating. Yeah, the experiment was really cool, right? Like yeah. the, seeing also the, the results of his pricing experiments and then him choosing a price that, that was the best long-term kind of price. That was so insightful, yeah. Exactly, and the, the first decision, right? I mean, like, it's a daunting. What, what should this be priced? I mean, it's not a market that presumably he knows. Like, is it architects that are going to be buying this? Is it uh, individual users? Is it uh, younger people, older people? You know, what's, why don't I offer, you know, 10 different prices, and I'll make the call later, right? Again, it's, it's amazing. That's very extreme, but uh, I think it's, it's the result of a lot of practice, right? Of yeah, exactly. This. And, and it's, he's, he's experienced enough with it to understand that he will run an experiment where most, most of the outcomes will be people, you know, like be slightly unhappy. Maybe they pay too much or, you know, they expected more for what they paid, but there will be that one price that works where you where he will see more of them pay than than in the, in the other price brackets and that's the one he keeps and i think dealing with this kind of uncertainty and particularly dealing with the 9 or 10 failures you need to see the one success that is that is something that is completely orthogonal to how we approach success in the in the employment world right either it's a guaranteed success or we won't even try it and here it's, yeah, we, we have like eight or nine things that don't work, but we will find the one that works. So this is a mindset that you have cultivated and that I guess successful founders have cultivated. How can, how can people get there faster? How can they be, have an easier time dealing with these little failures that lead to the equally small but noticeable success? Yeah, and I might be repeating myself here. I think the best way is to try many different things because once you start to realize that the thing that you were most bullish on didn't work and the thing that you least expected was the thing that paid off the best it changes wires in your brain <laughs> right i mean you 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 it humbles you right i mean uh, me in my case probably was the twitter course that sort of revealed this to me because you know the aws book was something i was specialized in you know i had decade of experience uh, even though it sort of still uh, paid off better more than i expected but the twitter course on a whim, right? Very small project, right? I just yeah. recorded myself. And this thing made $100,000 and it's still making like $4,000 a month. I, I still get a four or five sales a day and I don't even know where these people are coming from. Like, it's just who is like, <laughs> what's happening? Like almost three years later. And I can't explain it. Like, there's no evidence. There's no, if, like, if I look at my sales graph, there's like, at some point the gradient changed. I don't know why it changed. Like, uh, again, and basically this to me, and, you know, when I talk with successful founders, uh, you know, Adam Watton recently said something similar. Like, I could have never imagined five years ago that I would be making money, millions of dollars, from a CSS framework, right? Again, right, um, uh, where he was doing different other things. Like, like many of us, he uh, was trying to start a SaaS business, right, and something like that. And um, I am, again, to bring that, the analogy with VCs, I think it's similar as well with, with VCs. VCs might be bullish on... Crypto, Web 3.0, Clubhouse, whatever, and investing a lot. And then the thing that succeeds is some random 
you know, thing that nobody ever expected, right? And I think the good VCs understand this, even though they try to be bullish because they try to hype things up, whatever. They still know VC will, will say, I'm going to liquidate all my investments and go all in into you. Like, no matter how bullish they were in Clubhouse, nobody just went all in, right? They might have written a, a check that was a bit bigger than usual, twice as big, five times as big, but they were still very, very diversified because they know, right? They know that the things that they paid off in the past were things that they barely um, looked at. I, by the way, I've seen this at Amazon, right? I mean, Jeff Bezos, you could say, cultivated a portfolio of small bets, of course, at his scale. AWS itself is a portfolio of, I think there's probably now 200 plus pro products, right? And oh, I can't reveal the numbers, I'm bound by my NDA, but I can tell you, right? That it's basically, there's five making money, bunch of them breaking even and a bunch of them losing money and the ones that are making money were the ones that nobody knew like this very simple thing really right <laughs> um and um same thing with amazon in general right it bears like many things the phone that failed the auctions that failed lots of drones you know things that went nowhere and then Alexa or whatever ended up sort of blowing up right which there was already competition and whatever it wasn't there a strong thing right and Again, it just shows you the role of randomness in business, which doesn't mean business is all random. Again, this is what people misinterpret me. I'm not saying business is all random or that skill is not important or that uh, the market fit is not important, whatever. But there's a role of randomness being in the right place at the right time that is significant, right? And you can't underestimate it. And the best way to tame it, again, is to do the same way we, do, we deal with risks and uncertainty in financial if we diversify, right? I mean, we might think Apple is a great company. I wouldn't want to invest all my life savings in Apple. Be why? Not because it will go to zero, but because some law in China might change tomorrow and suddenly the revenues drop by 50% and, and then everything, you know, snowballs. Who knows, right? I mean, these things happen all the time. And the way we tame that uncertainty is by not going all in into Apple, diversify into an index fund or even better, between different uh, economies or countries or whatever and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's like what you've been doing with your own portfolio, right? It's very yeah, diversified. Yeah. I, I love your your many info products and now you have a community going. What what I do wonder, because again, Peter Levels, he, he posted um, a couple weeks or months ago, a list of all the products he has ever done. And all the products that made some money was like four or five of them. And that was like 80 products that did not. That, that is a pretty interesting ratio. How is your ratio? Did you ever calculate that at this point? Yeah, like the, um, I, I think I have a somewhat better ratio. I think, to be honest, Peter is being... <laughs> no, no, but Peter is being too harsh on himself. Right? I, I think in that, li in that list, like he had the make book, which he considered like in the failure part. But he made, it made him like $200,000. Right? But to him, it's not growing anymore. I think that's only four are still making money now. That's what he said, right? And... Uh, and I think even in his case, his ratio is is decent. My ratio, I think, is around fifty percent. Roughly, like I had I had a tweet recently where I, where I had like a cumulative sales of every product, and sort of there was like three 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 products at the bottom, like three products still growing. I think if you search for me and three hundred k, you might be able to find it, but. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I like this. Yeah, your days on market versus revenue graph. Yeah, I, I really, that's I really enjoy. Yeah. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Uh, this this graph yeah. has that that was inspirational to me too. Particularly seeing how your small bets product, which is to me a mix between a course and a community, a co cohort course really, but it it goes beyond that, right? You you empower people like on a long term basis. How successful this has been, and it seems to me. If, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but every product that you launch gets to have a steeper curve in terms of revenue versus days on the market. Do you think that's random and luck or is, is that a result of experience? It wasn't. It wasn't actually, I don't think it was like that. Right? I think so. It was a little bit in the beginning. Right? I mean, user base was one of the lowest and then mm -hmm. the AWS book was second, which was better. And then the Twitter course was better. But then I did... The, the cutting, cutting boards, boards yeah, that's right. Didn't work. <laughs> I did profit and loss membership, which was my first attempt at a community. I tried to build a community on Circle. It didn't work, right? And incidentally, this is a funny thing. You know, the small best community, I didn't try to build a community. I just launched the course and uh, I kept doing the cohort course. I kept repeating it and the community happened on its own. I wasn't mentioning a community at all on my landing page. 
I think I was lucky. Like the first couple of cohorts, the people were very active. I had set up a Discord server just to share the recordings and the slides and the notes and whatever. And people kept coming up after the course ended, right? And they kept helping each other without my intervention and they built the first energy, I think. Without them, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. And I didn't ask them to do it. I didn't do anything to help them do it, except I was lucky, I think there was a place for them to hang out. And then the first, as people continued to join, people started telling me, I signed up for the course, but I'm staying for the community. I'm enjoying the community more. And people were actually telling me, you should probably start mentioning the community in your landing page. And then I made, a, I made a, another small bet. Right? I made a marketing deposition. I started selling the community instead of the course. Now I'm selling it, join the small best community, and the course is free. Right? And I almost changed nothing. I still am doing the course every month. Right? But instead of people signing up for cohort 11 and they have a, sign, a fixed date, they join the community and they can take the course whenever they want, as many times as they want. It's just there. They can join and whatever. And it worked. I think it improved my conversion rates better because it changed what I'm selling. People, I think it tapped a little bit into fear of missing out. You know, a course, yeah, it's a course, education, knowledge, but a community, more people, I think, uh, want to be part of something, right? And um, I think it helps me tap again into a pool of customers that, um, uh, you know, that probably I wouldn't have been able to reach. And then I did another small experiment. I started inviting guest speakers, right? This was another financial investment. These are people I'm paying. Right? I already spent over $25,000. I'm going to spend uh, twice as that. Now sponsoring some recorded classes as well, like helping people record courses will make them free for the community. And then the course creators can sell them on their own as well, right? And uh, so even though now I'm, it seems like I'm making big, bigger bets, it's not really that much. I mean, it's still, to me, like when I started inviting guest classes, I said, okay, let's, let's start an experiment with $5,000. I do five guest classes. Let's see how it goes. Will people show up? Will people like it? It was still, uh, to me, again, I, like, like you mentioned in my tweet, if I were to lose $5,000, will I lose sleep at night? No, right? I mean, uh, this product already made a lot, right? Of course, I don't want to lose them, right? It's, but but uh, I would still be somewhat disappointed that you can never eliminate disappointment completely, but it wouldn't affect me in any material way. And same thing now, right? Sort of, uh, I'm still placing small bets on the community still. I'm still trying to make it succeed as much as possible. I'm just not relying on it. Right? I'm just aware that this thing next year might not make me as much money or any money at all or in, in a couple of years, right? It's just the reality. Everything has an end date, <laughs> right, at some point. Well, I, I love the fact that you're always keeping your eyes open for potential ways of improving this and improving the portfolio through it, right? Yeah. I, that's kind of what, what I see with this. I, I, I followed that. I followed your profit and loss. I found that very interesting because it gave mm -hmm. people a very interesting insight into somebody trying to diversify their portfolio with a product that then diversified that portfolio. I love recursion. That's just the funniest thing. I just really Funny. enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. And then seeing you taking the approach, but not the product and turning then that approach into another product and changing that over time, super exciting. And I think highly inspirational. And um, that, that kind of inspiration, first off, thank you for sharing this, like, because it's not, not everybody builds in public the way you do. Because I know that you also use your public presence, obviously now with what, 135,000 followers. That's significant, right? That's a lot of people. But, and, and obviously anything you do has a built-in audience, but then sharing your learnings and decisions along the way for other people to reach similar success in their own things just is a wonderful thing. So thank you for that. Always been a big fan. And it's, I know it takes time and it takes um, not just work, but also... Um, bravery in some way to talk about the things that do not work and that, uh, you know, you're kind of doubtful about. So particularly in front of an audience of a couple, you know, 100,000 people, that is that is substantial. Um, I, I just want, want you to know that I find it inspirational, that many people find it inspirational. And that brings me to the last thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about because we're hitting time almost. And I, you said that recently, uh, like all the things that we talked about today, you said that recently, but I, I find find that great that you find inspiration in scrolling Twitter for a while every morning. That is something that goes so much against what most people think social media is. Like for most people, it's distraction. It's like doom scroll. And you said that that's where you get new ideas and uh, new inspiration. As the final thing, can you can you say something about that and how people can use this 
interesting, let's just call Twitter an interesting platform to create and to monetize. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is another realization that I think uh, occurred to me over the last couple of years is that I used to think, like many people do, that uh, ideas come in the shower, right? Or you go for a long walk and you sort of come back with a eureka moment and you have a good idea. And, uh, you know, of course, taking a long walk and thinking about something sometimes might help you optimize something, improve something, maybe think of a better name for your product or whatever. But usually, I think almost always, good opportunities happen when you embrace randomness. You need some inspiration from the outside. And I'm going to tie it also back to the VC, movie studios, book publishers things. Like the publisher who published Harry Potter, right, they, it wasn't the executives who sat down in a boardroom and decided, oh, we're going to write this whimsical story about our 10-year-old wizard who's going to do this. That. No, they just opened their inbox, they let random things come to them. J.K. Rowling showed up one day and they just decided... This might be interesting. Let's give it a shot. Same thing with VCs. Right? Look at Y Combinator. They do the American Idol-like audition day. Right? People come, pitch for 10 minutes, and they just say uh, yes or no. Right? They don't, they, it wasn't the VCs who thought about Dropbox or Airbnb or whatever, or Twitter or Facebook or everything. Random things came to them. And I think we need something like this. Right? And, uh, and if I reflect on everything that I've done, right, I can literally find the tweet that inspired me to do it. Right? And sometimes it's something seemingly unrelated, right? but it opens my eyes to a new way of doing things. And then it's like a catalyst. Right? And then I start thinking, what if I do something similar in my own domain. Like, I remember like the Twitter course because I had never done I have never recorded myself on video before ever. Like and and I you know I'm an introvert, sort of it's not something that comes natural to me. And I had this impression that video recording yourself on video was an extremely daunting thing, editing, recording, techniques, time interests that I didn't have. Once I was scrolling Twitter, a tweet showed up from a person who I didn't follow, even was retweeted by somebody. It was a course on Gumroad about uh, flipping pellets, it's called. Right? It's basically this business ha side hustle thing where you buy returned goods from Amazon and Walmart and whatever, and you go to eBay and try to sell them. And this was $25. I was about to, make, I was about to go for lunch, and I bought it on a, just on a whim because I was curious. I wanted to uh, see what this is. And what blew my mind was the presentation, not the content. Or the content, I learned something, not, I doubt I'm going to use it. But uh, this lady here who created this course just took her iPhone, uh, started driving, went to the car park, literally first-person <laughs> mode, <laughs> went to the awesome. warehouse. And she's uh, just explaining how she picks the pellets, which pellets are worth it, how she breaks the pellet to fit it in the car, mundane things like this. But it made it approachable. It made it feel like, to me, if I wanted to start getting into this pellet flipping business, I know what I do. And it seemed like it was completely no effort for her. She didn't do any editing, any recording, like vertical mode, literally just iPhone. And it was okay. Like The production quality wasn't necessary. And there, there I saw that on a, I think it was on a Thursday, on the flight, because I wrote the same thing. In the back of my mind, I already thought I should do something with the knowledge I got to how, how to build an audience. But I was thinking, should I write a book? Should I, what should I do? As books felt daunting for something so visual. And this was a light bulb moment. I know what I need to do. I'm just going to create a Zoom meeting with myself, share my screen, press record, and I'm just going to talk brain dump of what I do, what I tweet about, what I don't tweet about, how I set my profile, Blah, blah, blah. I, I targeted an hour. It took a bit longer. I didn't edit it. I didn't speed it up. I didn't cut anything. Upload to Gumroad. And again, like, I, if I didn't bump into that random tweet on that day from a person who I don't even follow, I would have missed out very likely on a $300,000 payoff. Probably it opened even more doors. And, you know, this is just one example. Everything else that I've been doing, that it was something random. Right? And I, again, I think... I'm not recommending everyone should be using Twitter, uh, but everyone should s find something that is an inspiration generator. And this could be like, for example, a podcast series, right? I mean, it used to be like your, like the, the Hackers podcast is a good one, an excellent one. You hear people talk about how they set up their business, what they're doing, unconventional things, whatever. Right? This podcast of yours might be a good example, right? I mean, something that allows you to see things that until a minute before you weren't even aware of. That's what the thing. A great example of inspiration generator, my friend Peter Laskew, do you know him, the onions guy? I sell mm -hmm. onions on the internet. His mm -hmm. inspiration generator,
Twitter is every day he looks at expired domain names. He makes a cup of coffee in the morning. He's close to a list of over 100,000 expired domains. And it's fascinating. Every business he started, it wasn't an idea in the shower. He saw the domain. He, it, it sparked something in him, speaks to him. That's using his own words. He bids. Sometimes he doesn't win it. But he, once he wins it, then he tries to develop it. So it's super, super fascinating. Very randomness driven, embracing randomness. Right? And again, he's diversified. He's selling onions. He has job listing sites, birthday party services. So he tried SS, which he sold later. Right? Lots of different things. And he changes over time right? as well. He sells things. Right? He sort of, it's a super fascinating person. Again, excellent. He's been doing the portfolio business for over a decade. And he and I think his special thing is like his own unique inspiration generator. And again, I'm not saying everyone should do the same thing. That's what Im what's important for people to not just believe that they're just going to brainstorm an idea or an opportunity. I think we should be embracing randomness every day, bumping into random things as much as possible. I like that. Like seeding your inspiration by the random stream of whatever it might be, right? Maybe you're on Reddit, maybe you're on Facebook, maybe you're on Twitter, maybe you're just checking expired domains, whatever you find that, that allows you to come up with inspiring thoughts. That is a wonderful idea. And I've been, like I said, been following you on Twitter and you've been very inspirational to me and many others. So um, coming to a close where do, would you send people to be inspired by you? <laughs> Where would you like people to follow you? Yeah, certainly Twitter. I like Twitter, I'm not, I like Twitter a lot. Uh, I'm sort of sharing as much as I can on Twitter in the 280 character limit. Um, so yeah, Diva Sallo on Twitter. Um, and if you ask me a question there, I try to reply to everyone as much as possible. So this is probably the best way to contact you certainly <laughs> do. You, you definitely reply to my questions. So I'm really grateful for that too. Thank you so much for coming on today. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being here and bringing up all these amazing ideas that I hope people no, will thanks, take Arthur, to heart. Always, always great to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you'll find my books, Zero to Sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur and my Twitter course. Find your following there as well. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, what I would really appreciate is if you were to follow my YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast on your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will really help the show. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.